Encounters, a podcast from Glasgow International, bringing together artists and curators in creative conversation. Find us at glasgowinternational.org. My name's Ingrid Pollard and I'm an artist, photographer. I'm in the north of England, looking out on green hills and clouds and sunny skies. I'm Freya McGowan, freelance curator. I'm currently in my living room in southeast London, looking at very grey skies. In this episode, Ingrid Pollard and Freya Monk-McGowan discuss the history behind the Lesbian Archive, now housed within Glasgow Women's Library, and how it led to Ingrid's current exhibition, No Cover Up. We first met in 2019. It's hard to kind of date anything these days, but I think it was 2019. Part of this project was the um, commission and residency within the Lesbian Archive. And we brought together a panel of people to select an artist. And Ingrid was obviously the successful artist of that. Everyone agreed that Ingrid would be incredible to work with and particularly to get into that archive. And so I reached out to Ingrid, very nervous, sent a really long email. I read through it actually the other day. It's just like outrageously long email that I was just like through all of this information and just panicked and was like, here is everything that I could possibly say about this in one go. And Ingrid just replied going, great, I'm going to call you on Tuesday. <laughs> Not even a straight answer. I was panicking so much. And then, yeah, we, we, we spoke and Ingrid managed to come up to Glasgow. And we kind of jumped into the archive as soon as possible, really, and just ran around like kids. That's how I remember it. Uh, I'm not quite sure I remember that long email. It's probably stricken from my mind. <laughs> or that I just said, sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I thought Freya was friendly, so that was all right. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and I got the sense that, you know, that I was part of a bigger plan in terms of um, the archivists and what was happening there and getting the the lesbian archive sorted out. So as it went on, I, I, I realised I was part of a bigger plot, it's part of a bigger residency, a bigger moment, which is all residents I do, it's about those relationships that you form or it's all part of it. It's, I'm usually there for the journey, not just the end product, which is the exhibition. So it just naturally occurred that it became very much an exhibition or a work that's very embedded in that place and it's about the organisation and the fabric of the building and it's kind of a, a big project with little, little feet. Yeah, that's a perfect way to put it. I felt that. I used to work in a museum. I trained in a museum before and the museum record system that they have modes is filled. I mean, it's millions of records. But one of the first things I did was search, you know, lesbian and gay or LGBT. And I think out of millions of records, about 18 had a connection to a queer history. And that was probably one of the most depressing things I think I'd ever seen. So the archive the Women's Library holds is the Lesbian Archive and Information Centre. That's what its original name was. And it's kind of a combination or almost like a cluster of different archives that have come together. So different community or personal archives that were built in London. And it started, I think, in, in 1984, or at least there was a paid member of staff in 1984 that was caring for this archive. And gradually, as we get into the 90s, funding's being cut and they found it impossible to continue and they were, they were going to lose the building that they were housing the archive in. 
And it was a bit of a, a panic moment of, God, what are we going to do with these archives, these personal ephemera and records that we hold as safeguards? What do we do? And so they put out this advert in the gay press that just said, we need to find somewhere that can house this. And Adele Patrick and Sue John, who started the Women's Library, saw this advert and said that they had the space for it. So up it came in a, apparently in a rainbow-coloured truck, lesbian moving truck, and they just unloaded all of these boxes into this archive. And that's where it's been. I mean, the, the Women's Library itself has moved from venue to venue over that period as well. So this archive has just been kind of boxed from one place to another and finally rests at the uh, the Women's Library now in Landrishy Street in the East End of Glasgow. But because of this, all of this moving, the amount of time that's been able to be spent, you know, caring for it in terms of digitising it and recording it, there wasn't enough time, as it were. So that's what the project was about, uh, a two-year project. And that's where we're at at the moment. I mean, the project obviously got extended because of the pandemic, so that, that will be coming to an end. But it, it was always based as a foundational one because, you know, the amount of objects and items and records and, and just ephemery that's in the archive is huge. It would take decades probably to, to do it justice. I mean, there's still a rumour going around that there's a dildo somewhere in that archive, and I am determined to find it before the end. <laughs> I have not found it yet, but I, I will. But, um, but this was supposed to be a, a kind of a, what do we even have? Let's find out what we have so that we can then go on and continue finding more funding, really, to dedicate to this archive. And then we have Ingrid. <laughs> well, the end product that's there, that's now part of um, GI, the bits that I was looking at seem to be coming from London and from the Camden Lesbian Centre and Black Lesbian Group. It was kind of the time where I was around in North London, around Camden. And as I looked through various boxes, it seemed to be, oh, I, I recognise that person. Oh, I know that person. Oh, I remember that event. So what it's ended up with is looking at myself through the archive in a particular kind of way. So there were lots of events and there were magazines that I'd helped to lay out in London and the Women's Liberation Letter and Lesbian Line, all things that I had a connection with. And then there was different connections for all these people and different campaigns and demonstrations that I was at or knew people. So that became a mixture of my experience and being in London at that time and how it filtered through. So there wasn't, even though I was looking at lesbian archive, but I was trying to bring through the fact that, you know, that lesbians or women would be on apartheid demonstrations, people that are represented in the archive, they're, they're still around. So I could go and interview them and they could comment on the pictures. We had six officers, lesbian gay officers. There was a, a blind lesbian, an Asian lesbian, and me, the African lesbian. There was one Greek man and one white man from Yorkshire. Oh, and we, you know, we just had this real old mix. You know, it gives you a, a very intimate taste of it as people talk about what they remember from 40 years ago, what they don't remember. It's a live archive. People trying to make out that, 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 that it was splitting, that we were going to split the community, that... You know, there were lesbians and gay men versus the black community with very little recognition of the fact that we, as black lesbians and gay men, had a place to be. There's a photograph in one of the areas of Mrs Gross, uh, Colleen Roach's mother, who was a young black man in 83 who died in Stoke Newton Police Station. And I was working in Stoke Newton Cackney at the same time. So I've got demonstrations trying to trace what happened to his death. They still don't know how he came to die in the police station. 
So it's all those links that are there, not necessarily known in a lesbian archive, but those are all there because of the politics at the time. That was what I felt when, when first visiting the archive, was that what connects the objects in the archive are not necessarily the fact that everything is to do with lesbians, which you assume when you hear lesbian archive, right, everything's going to be about lesbians. But that's that's not the point. The point of it is that a group of people whether that was a you know a community group or the people that were looking after the archive at the time who may have identified as lesbians cared enough about these objects and these items and believed they needed to be kept safe and that's what connects them not necessarily the content of the item itself what it is based on is this fundamental idea that no one exists in isolation and that queer issues or lesbian issues are also disabled issues. There are also issues about parenting, issues about race. They're all connected. And the idea of separating them seems just beyond ridiculous. And that's what I think is so wonderful about this exhibition is that it does kind of bounce from one to another. You you get these interconnections. So they may not be immediately obvious. Just a short amount of time considering it, you would find the connection. And particularly in the world, you know, the digital world that we live in, this feels analogue. This feels like, you know, that you need to spend time in a different way and spend attention in a different way. Yeah. And I guess it does remind you most of the action was taking place, not pre-digital, but it was very, very early digital. So you wouldn't organise that way. It would be cut and paste, literally, to do outright. And the Women's Liberation Newsletter, the Lesbian Line, archive and people would write to lesbian line wait two weeks to get their response about being you know, like the only lesbian or queer in their village so they have to wait three weeks to get this answer back and then you've got an interview with someone who actually was one of the volunteers at lesbian line talking about the calls they would get you know young people who are desperate but also very confident women who are afraid they'd lose their children so you've got one example of lesbian line as an organization and then you've got someone who's the minutiae detail about how many stairs they had to walk up to to get to the lesbian line office. I can't help but think about as well the um, the the difference, the sad difference and realisation there is, particularly, you know, when looking up the lesbian line and outright and things like that and reading these these letters that were saying, you know, this is your local queer thing. On, on Thursday nights in this pub, you know, lesbians meet and all these things. And what I found fascinating about it was that there was always something, no matter where across the country these people were in whatever region it was, whatever town it was, there was always something to go to, even if it was, say, you know, a few miles away. But if you compare that to now, in what we live in a digital space, what should be easier to, to find these things, literally just putting in, I find that there's there's even less so now. That Actually, the chances of there being something in, you know, the middle of nowhere, that there being this lesbian night, is just less and less. It brings this kind of again, attention to the differences of what was then and what's now and perhaps what should be, or at least, you know, as a 29-year-old queer woman, why I'm desperate to see, you know, coming out as a young person and looking around and trying to find the local gay club in my town, well, in Kingston, and that quickly got shut down. I mean, I, I got refused entry the first time for looking too straight, which was hilarious, and then <laughs> like a year later it got closed down. So it was just it was so sad. And and then you go to the archive and you're like, 
this is where it's been this whole time. I can see that this was a thing. I, you know, you always watch the lesbian shows and you're like, God, that looks amazing. It's all mystery and magic and things that clearly aren't real. And then you go to the archive and go, no, it was real. I was just born in the wrong decade. And we just need to, you know, get better at having more of them. Yes, I did spend time looking at Outright and Spare Rib and other magazines and then you look in the back for events and there'll be like pages of events you know talking groups clubs writing groups it was just amazing how many I remember that and then you'd look in the ad section and there'll be um this organization needs a, a gay officer social services or something and so that was also astonishing because you know the way people word it was very particular in those days but now it's even more particular you what you can say and what you can't say, opportunities for people. So that, that sort of arc of change in language and how you do things and organise is very different. So that was fascinating, just how many opportunities and things they appear, appeared to be and how they all slowly went away, disappeared. A sort of small organisations had to suddenly make a profit and suddenly had to pay for their rent themselves when they'd been getting money from the Arts Council, from the local authority, it's just how these things change. Yeah. And the opportunities now are different. They're, they're great, but they're, they're different. It's that kind of tension between being accepted in wider society and therefore you don't need your own space because we can go anywhere and be lesbians anywhere versus actually feeling like you do have a space where you can go and even you know, looking at another person and understanding all of these signifiers about them before you even speak to one another and going, ah, I know, I know, I can see it. And it's it's sad, but a reality of these archives that, of course, we should remember these things. So it does connect these massively disparate, what at least feels disparate. So there are things in there that you'll see homophobia and something like that, and it is massive. So you go on one side and you're looking at kind of, lesbian sexuality or lesbian sex or something right and you open it and there's like three things in there you're like well that's very disappointing and you turn around and you see the homophobia <laughs> folder and it's absolutely rammed i mean they had to make more than one fold. it's absolutely rammed sad that the, the disproportionate kind of volume of things is such in a way but because it is a young archive and because they are still accessioning things you could imagine that this will just keep growing yeah i think that's quite sort of thrilling especially when I look and there's someone who's you see they've um, been sending their archives their personal archives their life story quite diligently and it's all carefully marked out they've kind of sat down thought about how they want to be remembered where they want to be remembered and they're actually systematically doing that and so they're not hidden but they sort of are hidden it's, you know it's a hidden history but it's, it's quite clearly there if you want to look for that you know, a complete life story on the shelves. It speaks about the safety you can feel about being out or in that particular period and continues now. So there are those elements in there. I remember one of the conversations that we had about one of your previous residencies, particularly in the north of England. There was a phrase that you used that was about, I think it was that you were walking on farmland and you'd been watching people work the land and that you had wanted to both work the land and walk the land there's photographers that do landscapes some of them actually do spend a lot of time walking i'm sort of walking the land type person repeatedly going to the same landscape 
but it's that thing of just actually walking and being in it, being in the library, being in that spot. I've been to the library when there have been other exhibitions there which are about different topics and they're placed there in that gallery space. So it's a different relationship to the landscape of the library and the landscape of Glasgow and then Scotland. So it felt very much, all the work felt about being in the library and it's about the library and the relationships that are formed. So, you know, the landscape with its parameters, which is a listed building, so you have to adapt your exhibition to the different spaces and the concerns. And, you know, there was always that architectural spot of the, the huge half circle as you go in. It's just dominates you now. I knew I wanted to do something there, but it's just how big could I make these pictures? So they filled it so that when you come in, it's, and you've got these tiny little photos out of the archive and you've blown them up. So it makes those people involved in demonstrations and political activities really big. You can spend time walking the land in the library space. I hadn't thought about it really like that actually before in terms of walking the land or the landscape of of the women's library. Yeah. And they are on different levels because, you know, the placement of everything throughout the library, you do have to seek it out. There is there is intention there. Although you may happen upon something and not realise it, if you do want to see the show, you have to find it and you do have to walk the entire library. There are parts that are upstairs. Obviously, everything's accessible. There's a lift, but you do have to go around to find it all. Within the library space where the book stacks are, there's a freeze, images from different demonstrations, both the joyousness of being in a demonstration amongst people and allies, but then there's the other bits where you could get harassed or kettled by the police. But then there's a, within the book stacks themselves, there's these small audio interviews with people who are actually represented in the archive. So it's both wanting people to just come across those and then you can go on the map and look around. Particularly the audio boxes that people can walk past and press the buttons of. The idea that these people are kind of whispering to you and calling to you, even when you might not have meant to hear them, that you might just be a library visitor that's literally looking for a book. It was brilliant. I loved it. I love my work. I worked at Lambeth Women's Workshop. I also worked at Southwark Women's Training Workshop, which was another carpentry training workshop in South London. The projects were brilliant, they were well run. Most of the women who worked there were also really brilliant, highly committed. It was a really great atmosphere to work in. We started trying to work with young people and schools and trying to get teachers to work positively with young people around the issue of sexuality. And that truly, truly blew up in our face. Socialising demonstrations, political activity, they're all part of the same mixture of things, it's, as we understand now. And there's another aspect of it, that as you come in, there's a area in the front which has, now has a video of Susan Bonner singing three songs. She's a local Scottish actor and very fine singer. So there's something about then connecting it to, you know, the wider area of Glasgow and Scotland as well. There's something about having that element of music and song and there's an emotional response you can have from the singing. I mean, someone there cried when she was singing, which is kind of very heartwarming. I know Susanna would, uh, Suzanne would like that. So it's kind of a noisy exhibition for a library. I keep thinking, what was I thinking of <laughs> in a library? 
<laughs> I really enjoy that. That's one of my favourite things about it. But, you know, it, it kind of works. Yeah, it does. <laughs> and there's also the photograph of Colin Roach's mother, which is kind of a, a, a stepping off point for the whole exhibition. So you see her on the demonstration with the same signage that's for the exhibition. So there's very su subtle things that are very personal to me, people you know, that I knew from the 80s, I see in pictures and I keep thinking, I wonder what happened to them, where are they? But then there's another story about, you know, why didn't they continue being photographers or painters or involved in music? And, oh, they're really, really ill. Why is that? Is it just life is so grinding and punishing at the same time is that you find a community? Because there is an interest in the 1980s by researchers and young students. So sometimes I'm asked if I'm still in there batting. But then I always say, you know, look at those other people. You need to speak to them. Why did they stop? Where are they now? What are they doing? Yeah, it certainly takes a certain amount of resilience to be continuing, as you say, in, in particularly creative or artistic expressions when you are part of a society or that doesn't necessarily feel like you fit comfortably. I remember reading um, Sarah Ahmed's Queer Phenomenology um, that's looking at that feeling of not fitting and that you feel like the, the angles of yourself start getting rubbed almost like a pebble to the point of being smooth so that you fit into the society well enough and how to challenge that how and should you I mean it's extremely exhausting and um as I've got older I it's not that I care less who I offend or it's not offend it's rubbing people up the wrong way or they come across something they don't quite like. And that's part of the work. So hopefully they can examine what's causing them discomfort. And a lot of times when I'm looking at archives, and sort of colonial ones, there is a moment where I have to sit with the discomfort but still goes through it anyway. I'm not going to take the decision to shut myself out because it's difficult, because it's painful. We're going to have a really uncomfortable conversation. It's like, you know, there's... Let's go for it. I don't want to do a, a screaming, shouting thing, really, but it is, this is uncomfortable for some people, so we have to constantly remember that. I might be very comfortable, supposedly, in LGBTQT community, and we can have difficult conversations because they are there, but you, know, you have to be resilient. You just have to carry on. There's a number of younger artists who are saying, you know, resilience is not good. It's, you know, it makes you ill eventually. There's another way of practicing so resting recuperation looking after yourself is part of their art-based practice which is fantastic but uh, you know I'm going to be there in the pits it's because I'm older it's still scary and uncomfortable but I'm prepared to have those conversations it's part of my job you know as an artist and I never kind of leave my race or sexuality at the door anywhere I'm going it's got to come in it's impossible to leave it at the door. And I always assume when we're talking about these things abstractly, I'm also talking about race and sexuality, class as well, gender. Those are all there with me, whether I'm saying as a black woman. I don't really tend to say that anymore. I might have done it when younger. But it's always, it's always there in the room with us. It might be a sort of an elephant. We're ignoring it. But um, I'm prepared to have the difficult conversations. And if people don't want to have the conversation, then... There's no dialogue. It's problematic. And any artwork is the start of a conversation. I mean, it invites people to have a dialogue, whether it's like, 
you know, why is that there? Why are you disturbing the library? Which I have had those conversations there. I don't like that. You know, that's some responses I've had, which is great. Let's talk about why you don't like it. You're allowed to not like it. But, you know, what's the reason for that? You know, I'm prepared to have a conversation about something I've just spent two years making. It's all right. (laughs) Very welcome, actually, to have a conversation about it after this long. Yeah. I feel like I constantly have these not necessarily kind of existential concerns about being a freelance curator, particularly when it comes to art and activism, political art or anything of the in-between. As a freelance curator, right, the importance is based on the next thing you're going to do because you have to fund yourself, right? Otherwise, how are we going to live? And if you're basing your next work on the fact that you have to eat to live, where's the integrity in the art that you're either helping to produce or putting on, you know, is that based actually on the integrity of the art itself or is that based on the fact that I need to pay my rent? So I, as a curator, am constantly in between this tension of what I should and shouldn't be doing, what's reasonable to ask of an artist or of an audience goer, but also a wider thought process of art and activism are inextricably linked for me but also who's seeing these shows and who needs to see these shows? Where are they situated? How do we make sure that if it is supposed to have this drive to activism, those that we feel like should see it are seeing it? And importantly, that would take place outside of the white cube gallery setting a lot of the time because fundamentally the majority of people that go to a white cube gallery space are people that aren't necessarily the people that need political activism, if you see what I mean, who's actually seeing it and why are you doing that? That was It was always the question of why are you putting on this show? And I think it may have left me in this kind of spot where I feel like I can't take a step without having this real, like, powerful drive. Why am I doing this? Does it have an ethical base? Does it make a difference? Does it do something? But again, I think that means that a lot of the time you end up not doing anything. But this is this is the problem that I, I, I see. I think particularly people that are, you know, were demonstrating in the 80s, it was a case of you did, you turned up. A lot of the time it was you, you literally turned up in your body and you were there and you were doing it. It was it was regular. And it was it was about a load of different things. I remember I went to the, you know, against the Iraq war in was it two thousand three? Can't remember now. But you know, the biggest march that there had ever been. And it made absolutely no blind bit of difference. And it's that feeling of whether anything can change and whether art can be that vehicle for change, whether it does fuel people as a vehicle or whether it makes us feel like we're doing it and ultimately nothing actually happens afterwards. I think it it can make a difference over time, but it's always a long game. You know, you only have to mention George Floyd and see what's happened just in terms of appeared to happen in terms of policing in America, the discussion of, you know, prisons and that funding, whether that's, you know, how can we change all that? You know, someone like Angela Davis has been campaigning for no prisons for like 40 years and she knows she's never going to see the reform in her lifetime. So, I mean, as an artist, I know I'm in it for the long haul. Perhaps I've got another, you know, 10 years, you know, mental capacity in me. So, But it's always, a, it's a long game. It may appear that nothing is changing through your own work, but it does eventually, even if your archive is then in another library and then a younger 
researcher comes across it and looks and makes connections between what you did. Yeah, it's a long game. It's not about fame and money, which is sort of, you know, kind of nice. But it's if you're going to be work, doing work that's about activism, then it does take a long time. And even if, if your, your work appears to be beautiful and it's celebrating something, it, it does have a political stance whether you, you'll do it or not because it sits in the world full of all, all its fascination. They're all in the world together competing. But it's a long game. I like that. That makes me feel better about it. <laughs> oh, good. I've got to have a plan, 10-year plan. Yeah, right. 50-year plan, it sounds like. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, Five-year plan. Just so you can ignore it. <laughs> but it's, it's always about change. Change is good. Ingrid Pollard and Freya Monk-McGowan. Find out more about the exhibition No Cover-Up at glasgowinternational.org. Encounters was produced by Lindsay Moyes for Glasgow International, supported by the Scottish Government's Expo Fund and Arts Fund. Thank you for listening. Thank you.